Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, so what do you think Donald Trump's New Year's resolutions are? He never needs to resolve to change anything because he's perfect just the way he is. I mean, he he told us in his uh, New Year's Eve tweet. Okay, uh, I don't read it. However, you pronounce in in all caps. In all caps. All caps. Happy New Year to everyone, including the haters and the fake news media. 2019 will be a fantastic year for those not suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. Just calm down and enjoy the ride. Great (laughs) things are happening for our country. Calm down and enjoy the ride. That's a great New Year's resolution. Just calm down! (laughs) It sounds like a threat. Calm down and enjoy doesn't it? Yeah. 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 holding you at gunpoint. <laughs> just call it and enjoy the ride, buddy. Also, I just want to point out there are no spelling errors or uh, obvious oh. grammatical. Maybe that's his New Year's resolution. <laughs> to let someone grammar. else write his tweets. reading. <laughs> spell check. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the New Year, New You edition. I'm Shane Harris, still the old me. Yeah, but you're a great you, Shane. Oh, thanks. I feel recharged. I almost feel like a new me. I had a wonderful holiday of doing absolutely nothing. That's the best kind. I did not look at Twitter for almost two weeks. That I is know. amazing. I it saw was, you writing that on I Twitter when you came back. So much. I feel like my brain has had one of those like cleanses where you just drink lemon juice and cayenne pepper <laughs> for like a month. That's how my brain feels right now. Like Are you back on Twitter now, though? You've I decided am, to throw it all like, away? Because you can't, you don't know what's going on. Like it, you have to just totally disconnect. So now I'm trying, like, how do I re engage? Without, like, I saw you asking insane. for articles, being like, "What should I? What do I need to read? In what order to get caught up?" <laughs> I still don't know. Although it wasn't the most crazy news cycle while we were away. I mean, there was. I mean, obviously, Mattis was. Yeah, I mean, the Secretary of Defense we resigned in protest. That the president withdrew. Maybe troops from Syria. Maybe we'll talk about that. Too. There was maybe a mystery Supreme Court Mueller case. Yeah. And, and then there was the and there was else? the tweeting. Yeah, right, slow news month, big yeah. deal. No, but let's let's. The Secretary of Defense who resigned in protest was precisely the Secretary of Defense we all expected to resign at some point in the not too distant future. Uh, nobody seems to have been fired whose removal we were not already contemplating. And so I think it was pretty slow news couple weeks as these things go compared to the baseline where you wake up every morning and something crazy is happening that you had no idea was going to happen. Just the usual expected craziness. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll go with that. That sounds good. I am here in the podcast studio, the new Jungle Studio, with Ben, Tamara, and Susan. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi, Happy New Year. Welcome back, everyone. We missed you. Uh, This week on the podcast, how will a new cabinet and a new Congress respond to the big national security challenges of 2019? An American businessman is arrested in Russia and charged with espionage, and Senator Elizabeth Warren is exploring a run for the White House. We'll take a look at her foreign policy proposals. Um, so let's start with uh, uh, what we're kind of thinking as a 2019 forecast. And let's start with big DOD kind of centered challenges, national security challenges, because as we mentioned at the top, obviously Jim Mattis is no longer uh, running the Department of Defense. Having, Can't wait to read that book. That's that, you know, I don't know if he's the kind of guy who's going to write a book. I mean, he's written them before. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know if he reads this kind of book, but mm-hmm. wow, that would be the page turner. Um, so obviously that leaves the Pentagon now in the hands of an acting secretary, and there's no shortage clearly of huge challenges on the horizon. I, I just want to point out about the acting secretary, he's got a lot of A's in his name. Does he? Shanahan. Pat Shanahan. That's a lot that's, of A's. That's fine. He's A-list. 
<laughs> He's got a lot of A's. He's tops. Um, let's talk about maybe the topic A. That we'll be <laughs> pile of crap that'll be landing on his Our plate. Our podcast resolution is really to tighten things up around <laughs> tighten here. Tighten it up, right? Professionalize. Um, so the precipitating event for Jim Mattis to issue his resignation letter was the president announcing via tweet that we were pulling troops out of Syria. It now appears that maybe we are, maybe we're not. There's some indication that they might be coming out on a delayed timeline. There's not really been any independent corroboration of that coming out of the military that there even is a timeline. So we sort of start the the new year with this obviously huge question mark hanging over Syria. So, Tammy, talk a bit about that, and then we'll tick through some other uh, big ones on the list of, of New Year's unresolved issues. Sure. So our last episode before the break, I think we talked about the Syria withdrawal and why a precipitous withdrawal was so threatening to American partners in the region and potentially destabilizing of a power balance, if you want to call it that, or at least a power competition in the Middle East overall. And what we've seen in the weeks since this precipitous announcement is, number one, Efforts by the uh, uniforms to let it be known that they have their own concerns about the consequences of this withdrawal. So unnamed quotes from special forces and some quotes from senior uh, uniforms about their concerns about our anti-ISIS fight, about our Kurdish partners in that anti-ISIS fight and what may become of them. Um, we've also seen the Turks take swift advantage, threaten, and then uh, very magnanimously hold off on a military offensive that we can assume will put tremendous pressure on the Kurds in Syria. Uh, we've also seen another important American partner, Israel, uh, complain loudly, very loudly about the consequences of this. And uh, and again, through more anonymous leaks, let it be known how betrayed and blindsided they felt by the decision. And so the question is, okay, Trump got what he wanted in the sense that he announced he's bringing the troops home and he seems very, very proud of it. Is there a way he can implement this that mitigates some of the risks and costs for the United States and for our friends in the region? And can the president be persuaded to do this in a way that mitigates? Uh, here enters that voice of reason, that that thoughtful, moderate Lindsey Graham, right? <laughs> um, who I think has has tried to take up the role in the Senate of the Trump whisperer, right? right? And so he was on the Sunday talk shows this week um, basically suggesting that he had persuaded the president to delay or slow down this withdrawal. And it's not at all clear that that's the case. It's clear that Lindsey Graham wants to suggest he has influence over the president's foreign policy thinking, partly, I think, to tamp down the anxieties of his fellow Republicans that with Mattis's departure, we're now in crazy land when it comes to national security. Um, but I think that whether this withdrawal takes four months, six months, one month, uh, it is going to have significant strategic consequences for the Middle East and for the power struggle that's ongoing there. And I don't think that there's any way to mitigate that. So, Tammy, can sort of check my craziness here, whether or not I'm being too, you know, conspiratorial. The U.S. withdrawing from Syria and establishing Russian control over Syria has clearly been a major goal of Vladimir Putin for several years, yep. sort of bolstering their presence, you know, bolstering their regional control. That's clear. It's very, very difficult to see what U.S. strategic interests are served by this withdrawal, especially this kind of withdrawal. Is it crazy to think that this move is a major capitulation to Russian interests in a way that we should think about it in line with all the other bizarre capitulations to Russian interests we've been seeing? Or do you think that this really is the realization of Trump's instincts from the beginning, which has been to withdraw American forces from abroad, sort of consequences be damned? I would... I would posit that it's primarily the latter, that Trump's mistrust of foreign deployments of American forces is really longstanding. He, you know, before he ever ran for president, 
expressed his desire not to have U.S. forces in Europe, not to have U.S. forces on the Korean Peninsula. And we've heard throughout the first two years of his presidency, his suspicion of these deployments and his desire to end them. So in that sense, it's not surprising at all. It's the timing and the manner that makes it such a capitulation. It's not that the American, the very small American presence in Syria was itself denying the Russians anything important. The The U.S. presence didn't affect the outcome of the civil war. The Russians were able to work with Assad to save his regime and regain control over the populated parts of the country and set the table for a negotiated settlement that will be on Assad's terms and Russia's terms. And the U.S. troops were not going to change that all they were going to do was going to be a little bit of a constraint, a little bit of a spoiler, and getting them out of the way would have required perhaps some moderate Russian concessions. So that's what we've given up on without any reason really to give up on them. I think the variables are a little bit overdetermined here. I mean, if you say, why were the Russians so eager to help somebody like Donald Trump? It was in part because he had views like like this. And so, you know, you don't have to get to, well, this shows they've got something on him in order to say this shows that the return on their investment is very high. Yeah, I guess, although one other sort of prominent, at least campaign goal and, and promise of, of Donald Trump was defeating ISIS, right? This was sort of a- Susan, um, he did that already. Um, right, I, I, ISIS has been plan. crushed and, and now it's time to bring the boys home. I, I think it is a <laughs> right, which is good. Um, no, I, but I think it is sort of one of the. It's an example of Donald Trump puts out so many different incongruent, you know, sort of views at all times that actually, no matter what he does, you can reconstruct sort of, you know, some long-standing instinct. And, and I actually do think you can, depending on sort of what lens you approach the Syria issue from, you can actually construct this as being entirely consistent with what he's been saying to the, from the beginning, or, you know, sort of a, a huge concession and sort of really walking away from a major, well, major campaign. Promise. Well, but I, no, but I think it's I, I, I think the best way to understand it is the fulfillment of several discrete campaign promises and I don't mean this as praise, though. When you say fulfillment of, like, one is uh, we're going to winning, just winning. We're going to we're going to crush ISIS, and then we're going to get out, and we're going to let other people do the fighting, right? And so he did a certain amount of crushing ISIS, and now he's getting out to let other people do the funding, fighting. And the second, and I think the really important one, which is what's driving the conspiratorial question that you asked, is that he promised that he wanted the U.S. and Russia to get along, and this is a a big you know, nod to the sort of thing that uh, would make Vladimir Putin happy. And so I think it, it's actually serving both the – it has a totally non-conspiratorial explanation and a completely conspiratorial explanation. And they're they're both sitting there right on the surface. There's another way to look at this too as I was thinking through this. And I read over the break this terrific article in The New Yorker by Patrick Radden Keefe, which if people haven't seen it, check it out, which is all about Mark Burnett, the executive producer of The Apprentice and before that The Survivor, the reality show – that you know brought Donald Trump kind of back from the dead and made him famous again, and the, and the piece posits Thanks, that. Thanks, guys. <laughs> well, in the piece posits absent Mark Burnett, there is no President Donald Trump, and I think it's a persuasive argument. Um, but there is this uh, bit of habit uh, that Trump had on the show that Patrick explores a little bit, which is an, which kind of echoes here, which is that Trump would, despite sort of the way that the producers were steering him on who should win which week or what he should say in the boardroom, would sometimes just kind of go wildly off script and fire somebody who wasn't necessarily the one people thought were going to fire. And then the editors and producers would have to go back and then re-edit the show to make the narrative that you see in the first hour look like it was all heading towards that conclusion that that was the person he was going to fire, so, which is, you know, another way of just doing cleanup, right? And it seems to me that a lot of, you know, if we're kind of talking about forecasting, you know, a lot of where we're going is Trump makes these announcements. He makes these proclamations. He does things that, yeah, maybe you were thinking he was going to do or could do, but he might not do in this way at that time. Uh, and then the staff has to kind of get around him and come kind of come up with the justification for it and adapt. I think that's absolutely right. I also think that in the wider ecosystem of foreign policy commentariat, 
there are lots of people trying to make sense of this stuff post facto when it doesn't necessarily have a rational basis or certainly a strategic basis. But I also think that we have to look at this decision in the context of looming decisions about American military deployments and American policy that the now acting defense secretary is going to have to face and that President Trump is going to be coming to conclusions on fairly soon. One is Afghanistan. He increased the troop deployment in Afghanistan against his own inclinations, persuaded to it by Mattis and the rest of the national security establishment. And he just is he's now getting dinged for that by uh, progressive Democrats who are starting to lay out their foreign policy critiques. And so he's probably feeling pretty sensitive about that. And it now has been reported that potential drawdowns from Afghanistan was another part of what was going on with Mattis and why he decided to leave when he did. And then there's a question of Iraq, where we have a government that is friendly, but it's also got strong relationships with Iran. So it's a very important locus for our broader concern about Iranian influence in the region and the concern that our regional partners have over that. And if he withdraws American forces from Iraq, that not only weakens the Iraqi government and weakens American influence in Iraq, it also really does create a security vacuum that ISIS could surge back into fairly quickly if we are neither in Iraq nor in Syria in a way that would prevent them from coming back. And so there's some very, very uh, dangerous security implications if he continues to follow this path. And, you know, we can make whatever assessment we want to make morally of Mattis's performance as defense secretary. It's clear that on a whole range of issues, he worked to slow roll, soft roll, mitigate presidential decision making. And now he's not there. Ben, let's forecast a little bit too on on the oversight side of things for 2019. How do you think the now it'll be tomorrow by the time people hear this, it might actually be the Democratic Congress has now taken power. Um, how are Democrats positioning themselves? And I guess more to the point, this is such a target rich environment for oversight um, and not just on the subject of Le Faire Russe, but, you know, kind of pick your poison. It is, it is, it's truly like a buffet. So how are Democrats, do you think? positioning themselves to go after the right subjects for oversight? And, and and what do you, if you want to make a prediction, think they're they're going to go after first or maybe get the most traction on? Well, first, uh, they're going to reinvestigate the Vince Foster suicide. No, <laughs> and then God. they're going to move on to the Benghazi episode. And then, That's... of course, they're going to take a look at Hillary Clinton's emails again to make sure we got the truth Finally. on that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the American people demanded. Grown-ups um, are back in charge. No, but really. So, look, I think – the they do have this object lesson in uh, how not to do it, and that was the way the Republicans did it in the late 90s. And that strategy of investigating everything all the time, no matter how frivolous, in, up to and including – and people forget this – taking a watermelon in your backyard and shooting it to simulate the death of Vince Foster and then making speeches about it on the House floor. Although it may have been a pumpkin. It may have been a pumpkin or a cantaloupe or something. There's still a debate about- gourd or melon. That's what, what we should be investigating. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a- uh, that did ultimately backfire. And uh, it is a, you know- there are people on the Hill who have real memory of that. And Trump is not Clinton. He is not somebody who some large percentage of the, of the anxiety about is fantastical and some small percentage is very real. Uh, Trump gives you, as you say, it's a target rich environment. And so you have to choose your targets carefully. You have to decide. Are we going to focus on everything that he does that would otherwise be worth investigating in a normal administration? Or are we going to focus on those things that are, you know, the highest public integrity concerns? So uh, here's a good example. Like, how much time are you going to spend on emoluments? You know, you've got, you've got La Faire Russe, you've got, uh, the abuse of law enforcement, and you got this hotel, right? That's routing money to the president. 
I can make a case for that either way, right? So uh, the bad news is that the Democratic caucus is not unified on these questions. There are definitely people in the investigate everything all the time camp. And there are people in the let's be very careful camp. Uh, the good news is that the let's be very careful people seem to be the ones in charge of the committees. Uh, the people in charge of the committees are a mixed bag, a uh, very mixed bag. But the ones in charge of the most important committees are relatively responsible. And the one in charge of the most important committee, Adam Schiff, is is a very serious person. Do you think that is the most important committee or is the oversight committee? And, I, and not to get too in the weeds for people who don't follow Congress, but the intelligence community has, as its name suggests, a writ to investigate intelligence-related topics of which counterintelligence Russian interference is one. But the oversight committee can basically – Look at anything to the point of Dan Burton being, you know, the, the former chairman who shot watermelons in his backyard and talked about the dust on his shoes from when he walked around the scene where Vince Foster was murdered. Like their writ is basically limitless. So the oversight committee it has Vince Foster committed suicide. Just yes, for the just so we're. Oh, did I say killed? Oh Jesus! Um, <laughs> you see, say it enough God. times and it seeps into it's the like consciousness. Because it's, yeah, it's yes, you, for the you, record, you for, Vince Foster you killed himself. You forgot the part where. Hillary Clinton killed him and wrapped him in a carpet and dragged him out there. Right, dragged yeah. him and then jumped yeah. in the river and exactly. then got back for her interview um, with. See, you guys remember all of this, yeah. and yeah, it yeah. didn't happen. <laughs> so, yeah. look, the Oversight wow. Committee has exceptionally broad jurisdiction, and Chairman Cummings is a serious guy, and uh, I think is one of the people who has a real memory of how not to do this. I mean, he was the ranking, yeah. he was the ranking member on the Benghazi Select Committee. He, he has a certain experience with what overzealous, overbreadth here looks like. And he has a smart and prudent staff too. Um, that said, the intelligence committee – oh, and the judiciary committee has something else that neither of these commi other committees has, which is the impeachment authority, right? It is unfortunately one of the most divided partisan snake pits in the United States Congress, and that is saying something. Uh, what the intelligence committee has that neither of the other two committees has is – pervasive access to classified information, the ability to look at the stuff that is most sensitive. It has less than it used to, but it is going to try to restore the confidence uh, of certain intelligence agencies that cooperate with it on a routine basis. Uh, and it also has a more professional staff than the other, than the other committees do. And so, uh, and it has more expertise among the members in, in some important respects too. So I think that there is reason to think that all of these, all of these committees are going to be active. All of them are going to be aggressive. But I do think there's reason to, particularly for people who are interested in lawfare stuff, uh, Schiff's committee is going to be a particularly interesting locus. So I agree that the, the classification issue is one reason the intelligence committee is going to be really important. You know, the other thing that they have is appropriations authorities over programs for which, you know, the executive branch cannot afford sort of a playing chicken with Congress over this. And so, you know, if um, the intelligence chairs, especially if, if Schiff ends up being unified with Richard Burr on issues, if they decide to play hardball, uh, you know, with, with, uh, authorizations and appropriations, they can really, really leverage some concessions out of the executive branch and bring enormous amounts of pressure to bear. And, uh, you know, it remains to be seen how they're going to think about using those types of tools and oversight, in addition to sort of the the investigative capacity. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And while it might apply particularly to the intelligence community, I think that the appropriations power is going to be an important one for the Congress as a whole. I would note that congressional oversight also applies to arms transfers, whether they are through sales or through assistance. And uh, even Republicans, including Lindsey Graham, have made it clear that they are ready to block arms transfers to the Saudis. He sits in a very important role on the Appropriations Foreign Ops Subcommittee in the Senate. And then I think there's the broader oversight question regarding ethics. This is a particularly swampy administration, and um, that's true on national security and foreign policy issues as well. Uh, we got news today that acting Secretary of Defense uh, Pat Shanahan is maintaining the recusal from any matters involving Boeing where he used to work. 
Uh, while he's Small a, defense contractor. Right. Just one of the big five. And he only worked there for 31 years. It's not a big deal or anything. It was not a big deal for him to recuse when he was deputy, even though typically the deputy secretary would be very involved in contracting and procurement issues because there was a secretary where the buck stopped. Now he is where the buck stops. And so he has, is he going to leave these decisions to people who are below him in the chain of command? And how can they uh, make those decisions without being influenced by the preferences of the acting secretary? This is a huge problem. And, you know, for Democrats, given the budget deficit, the size of the defense budget is just such a luscious target. I think we're going to see a lot more attention to that. I think that's right. I mean, I do think it's the corruption stupid is going to be one of the most powerful sort of cudgels, especially going into an election year, that that is actually something that has a ton of resonance with populations. And let's face it, both whenever it comes to the Trump organization, the Trump family and the Trump cabinet, it's always worse than it first seems. And so once you start picking at that stuff, it has a way of just becoming these, you know, out of control rolling scandals. And so I do think that if they're thinking about this politically, and they surely are, that is just going to be an incredibly rich and and sort of productive area for them. And just to code it to that, um, I think that's right, too, because politically what Democrats need to do is pick topics that will resonate with and might persuade Trump supporters. And I don't think Russia is going to be one of them. I think that'll be something that goes under its own momentum and it can't be stopped. But I think you're exactly right, Susan. Corruption, swampiness, misuse and abuse of power, that will resonate with the people who put him in office to some some contingent of them will always stay with them and never abandon no matter what. But some of the people who voted for him because he was going to attack those things, I think those issues will resonate with them. And that's like a political goldmine for Democrats at this Big point. Big time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move on to our next topic. Um, an American businessman, Paul Whelan, and that's about all we know about him, uh, has been arrested in Russia and charged with espionage. This is a very mysterious case. It's kind of unfolding in drips and drabs. Um, but he was – in Russia, we know, uh, for a wedding, which was supposed to be held on December 28th, and he was arrested uh, and held for three days before there was any public statement from the Russians that he had, in fact, been arrested. So we found out about this on New Year's Eve. That's when his family found out as well. They were wondering why their brother and their you know uh, family member hadn't called <laughs> for three days. Uh, he's been charged with espionage. The Russians have not given us any idea of exactly what he is accused uh, of doing. He works for an auto parts company. Uh, He's their global director of security, which it's my understanding basically means securing physical facilities in the United States. And he's a Marine veteran. He's a Marine veteran, right? He was discharged. We're still learning more about that. But he is a veteran who served at least two tours, uh, we think, in Iraq. Uh, Had traveled to Russia many times, but the company who employs him now says he wasn't over there doing work for them. Uh, He may have been doing some work in Russia for a previous employer. Um, But a very strange case. And, And Susan, very difficult to kind of... We shouldn't jump to conclusions. It's very hard not to sort of jump right to the conclusion that this boy, does this sure look like uh, the Russians bringing in just an ordinary person and charging them with espionage uh, as a way of possibly retaliating against us uh, and the U.S. government for charging Maria Butina, uh, an ostensibly just normal person here studying uh, with being an unregistered Russian agent? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of strange things, uh, you know, about the case. The first is that it doesn't appear that the Russians told anyone in the U.S. government ahead of time. It appears that Russian media reported this sort of for the first time. Which and, would be a violation of treaties, too. And, and yeah. caught people by surprise. Yeah. There doesn't appear to have been any kind of consular notification. And so, uh, you know, this does appear to have been designed for sort of maximum political impact. And, and there's nothing about, you know, we don't know, but there's nothing about sort of the profile of this person or the profile of his activities or this particular visit that would suggest that this is the kind of person who is engaged in espionage. Um, Among other things, it appears he was dishonorably discharged from the Marines, um, uh, potentially something related to larceny, according according to his service record. He is not a U.S. government employee. 
that is really not somebody who would yeah. be consistent <laughs> with somebody who was doing work for the United States government or holding an active security clearance. And so, right. So it, it, it does seem like, OK, this is sort of a random person who's now been accused of espionage because essentially he's a hostage. And so they've arrested this person for the purposes of trading him in order to get their person out. Um, you know, I, I do think that that raises it a little bit, um, if it's right, challenges some of our assumptions about Maria Butina, which is that she's not that important, that sort of the activity that she was up to here was sort of this, you know, infiltrating the NRA and, you know, she didn't appear to be employing especially sophisticated tradecraft and how tight were her connections to the to the Kremlin in the first place. This, you know, taking this kind of measure would suggest that this is someone that they really want to get out of the United States. And so I think that does start to raise questions about, well, wait a minute, is this just a matter of political optics? And the other thing I think it shows is for all of sort of Trump's posturing about having a, having this great relationship with Vladimir Putin, this great relationship with the Russians, it does show that when push comes to shove, the most basic sort of forms of diplomacy that, that arise whenever you're talking about individuals being arrested on things like espionage charges, actually Trump isn't able to leverage this relationship to the U.S.'s sort of advantage at all. You know, I, I think that there are couple of pieces of context I would put in here. One is that when we all heard news of this arrest and when it was reported in the U.S. media, we all immediately went to, oh, this is to create a trade for Butina. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's a trade for something else that the Trump administration actually has more capability to deliver on. We went there because there is this history of spy versus spy, you know, in the Cold War where the U.S. and the Soviet Union would trade spies. But those were people who were actually our agents. They were actually working for us. And as you noted, Susan, this guy has no evident connection to the U.S. government. It's possible also that he was arrested for spying because he got caught up in some business deal and pissed off some Russian oligarch who paid to get him arrested. Like it could have nothing to do with formal government policy. It could just be evidence of how corrupt Russia is these days. So I think we have to keep that in mind as well. But, you know, when I think about the po- the possibility of this guy as a hostage to trade for something. Thinking about it a little more, I think it may be less like those Cold War spy for spy trades and more like other instances of American citizens imprisoned abroad where the governments holding them have found that the Trump administration is very eager to get individual American citizens back and is willing to do all kinds of ridiculous things to get them back. Look at the way the Trump administration dealt with the Otto Warmbier case. Look at what he's been willing to do to make the North Koreans look good, right? Look what he did to get Aya Hijazi out of Egypt, a dual Egyptian-American national who was imprisoned along with her husband uh, because they formed an NGO to help street children that was deemed illegal by the Egyptian government. And Sisi got a White House visit and a lot of love out of releasing Aya Hijazi. And then we have Pastor Brunson in Turkey. And so, you know, it's not (laughs) it's not crazy to think that the Russian government thought, well, this is just a good tool. We can use it for all kinds of things. It is also not crazy to remember that sometimes the United States does send agents to Moscow without uh, official cover. Uh, And by the way, it is also not crazy to remember that sometimes non-U.S. intelligence agencies have relations with U.S. persons in operations abroad. And so I'm not by no means accusing this guy about whose conduct I know nothing of being either a U.S. operative or an operative for some other intelligence service. But one possibility that we should keep in mind is that the Russians may have actually stumbled upon some uh, activity that in fact alarmed them, which is, of course, not what his family uh, would want to present right now. I mean, one other thing is that it does appear that even the United States government is currently relying on media reports about the nature of the charges. So Mike Pompeo's statement was, we've made clear to the Russians our expectations that we will learn more about charges, uh, adding that if detention is not appropriate, we will demand his immediate return. So that 
that's the Secretary of State who doesn't appear to actually know what this individual has been formally charged with in the first instance. And so there's a little bit of a, of a game of telephone. You know, to Tammy's point, I do think I think that's right. And I think that it illustrates how incredibly irresponsible Trump's comments about things like the, the arrest of the Huawei CFO and potentially being a bargaining chip in trade wars with China. It, it's, it's yet another example of how fraught and perilous it is to sort of wade into these waters in which you're using arrests and legal process in order to accomplish other policy goals. That's a really, really ugly road for the U.S. to go down and to have a U.S. president that, uh, you know, is is saying things that suggest not just that he, you know, condones the, condones the behavior, but is willing to engage in it himself. Uh, you know, I, I do think that this might be an example of, of how slippery that slope is. I so. totally agree. And I, I think that's right. And I wonder if, if we, you know, not to be too flip about this, but should we really be, be all that surprised? I mean, this is a government that illegally interfered in our election as it has in the elections of a number of other countries, uh, tried to assassinate two people on foreign soil uh, in an operation that uh, risked uh, considerable collateral damage. Uh, this is, I mean, it, I mean it, it, it startles me in the sense that to the whole spy versus spy point that Tammy was making, if this is like actually stepping outside the norm of that and just grabbing people and accusing them of being spies, that's kind of alarming and makes me wonder like, will they just start grabbing random people? I mean, should journalists be worried about going to Russia? Well, yeah. Right? But if we look at it in the broader context, I think of this and say, well, of course it's what they would do. I mean, this is effectively a regime that, not effectively, it is, that has flouted all kinds of international obligations, norms, behavior, uh, what have you, and engaged in all kinds of illegal so acts. So first of all, the spy versus spy stuff was never limited to spies. I mean, the the Soviets were not especially genteel with people who were not spies. Uh, right, but the U.S. was willing to trade to get people back because they were people who actually had had relationships with the U.S. and valuable information about U.S. intelligence. And so the U.S. wanted them back on U.S. Soil. Right. I mean, I think, look, one, I think it's very unlikely that the United States is going to be willing to trade for this person if he is, in fact, a civilian uh, who went to Moscow for a wedding. They're not going to trade somebody that we have a serious law enforcement interest in and a serious national security interest in for that. Uh, if the United States is willing to trade for him, it probably is a sign that there is some kind of an intelligence relationship with him. Um, I think that is extremely unlikely. I think the overwhelming likelihood is that he is some sort of a hostage. And that is, uh, you know, that's the, like China has been doing that in response to the, the Canadian Huawei arrest. Um, and I do think that, you know, Iran has been doing quite a bit of that recently. And I do think there is a bit of, oh, and, and Turkey, of course, held that U.S., uh, that U.S. Uh, cleric, uh, the Pastor, pr- Brunson. Pr- Pastor Brunson for a good long time. And so I do think there's been a bit of a demonstration project, uh, over the last few years that, uh, holding hostages in exchange for, you know, some form of trade or leverage is, uh, you know, kind of a low cost, high value proposition. And so you get a guy on the street in Moscow who you can pick up and make some scurrilous allegation against. Uh, why not do it? I love it when you agree with me. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> uh, um, this moment of marital harmony brought to you by <laughs> Rational Security. <laughs> um, let's move on to our third topic. I have just been segue-less, but it, it, it fits flowing very smoothly. I have a segue. Today. Do you do you have a segue for this next topic? No, no yeah, I just have a segue. segue. No. <laughs> that's not what I needed right now. Um, but Senator Elizabeth Warren has announced that she's forming an exploratory committee to look at running for president in 2020, which effectively means she's running for president. Um, she had a long four or five minute ad uh, slash biography uh, where she laid out uh, her case for uh, what's wrong with the current administration, where we should be going. Uh, in November, right, Tammy, she wrote this long article on foreign affairs and gave a speech in which she laid out a lot of her uh, views, not just her critiques of the current administration, but her broader critiques uh, of foreign policy and her view of where we should be going. And it struck me as I was reading this, and I was very heartened to see that Dan Dresner agreed with me when I read his analysis of it later, that this felt a lot like a 
domestic policy speech being shoehorned into a foreign policy speech and was trying to make these connections uh, and saying, you know, we need to get things right at home because our domestic decisions and how we uh, uh, make policy here has an effect around the world. And I could kind of see where she's going in some of it. Sometimes it seemed a little bit exaggerated, not quite like not quite jello yet. Um, but what was also interesting to me uh, was the extent to which she seemed to agree with the president in a lot of areas, um, uh, wanting an end to what she called endless wars, uh, this belief that, you know, corporations uh, and uh, she didn't use the word globalists, but she would kind of be putting some of these same forces in that camp had essentially rigged the system against America. And she's used the word rigged both in this speech and, and article many other times. Um, as Dan put it, it was Trumpism with a human face. Oh, that yeah, that was awfully mean, but maybe not entirely it wrong. It didn't seem wrong to me either. So, I mean, what, what do you think about this? I mean, what is what is I mean? What is Elizabeth Warren articulating here? Is it a fully formed kind of worldview, or or is it like I said, not yet Jello yet? And um, how is this going to play? Uh, do you think in the Democratic field? So I I think that you know it was very strong as a developed critique of what she doesn't like about the international system. But it is not what a Democratic presidential candidate needs, which is a critique of the Trump administration and its foreign policy. It was much, much lighter there. I would agree with you that it was primarily her domestic policy platform, her brand, which is about corruption, rigged systems, deregulation, and the destruction of the middle class because of fat cats capturing American uh, economic policy, and then a little bit of foreign policy content that sort of starts out by saying, well, you know, all my brothers served in the military and I'm on the, on the Armed Services Committee, so you should trust me when I say that uh, we need to pull out of Iraq and Afghanistan because we can't define success. So very, very sort of once over lightly on important questions of the role of the military tool and what the United States should be doing to preserve its own security and international security. But, you know, let's let's focus in for just a minute on the economic policy piece, because I actually think this is important. Number one, it is something that matters to the American public. The American public does not highly value America's role in the world right now. We have plenty of poll data demonstrating that. And so it's important for an as aspiring presidential candidate to tie America's role in the world to stuff that actually matters to people. And trade policy is one of those places where I think the Democratic Party has not really had a good answer. Um, she's right when she says that she doesn't say the Clinton administration, but that the Clinton administration sort of promised that free trade and economic globalization would produce a rising tide that would lift all boats. And it didn't. That's a real critique. The question is, what do you do about it? And, you know, if the if the critique of the quote fat cats is that they argue that what's good for GM is good for America and that's not true, she seems to be arguing that what's good for the middle class is going to be great for GM. And there's just no reason to believe that's true either. So I think it's a start. Um, but I think that once she gets out on the stump, she's going to face a lot of tough questions. I also wonder, and if you see if anybody else has picked up on this, but <clears throat> and it's, this is a, this is a feeling I've had about Elizabeth Warren for a long time, really since she emerged in 2008 as one of the the really articulate explainers about what happened in the credit crisis. Is I, I don't mean to. to to demean her views on this, but there's an element of there's a conspiratorial kind of thinking that's always been present to me in the way that she talks about rigged systems that very much echoes the way Trump talked about things. And it, 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 in his case, it's oversimplifying. And in her case, I wonder if it's overdrawing um, because she talks about in this essay, policymakers propose that open markets would lead to open societies. Instead, efforts to bring capitalism to the global stage unwittingly helped create the conditions for competitors to rise up and lash out. And essentially what she's saying is in the Cold War, era, our desire to export democracy and encourage free markets, you know, kind of tainted lots of societies and allowed huge corporations and oligarchies to arise. And it seemed a little bit like the speech that like Donald Sutherland's character gives in JFK, where he starts just connecting all of the dots of global influence to sort of like one single source of corruption. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I would call it conspiratorial. I would call it 
incredibly oversimplified. And and obviously she's, you know, mounting a campaign and part of sort of preparing to run for president is condensing really, really complex views down into something that's sort of sound bitey. Um, you so know, this but, was a foreign affairs article. It, but it was a foreign affairs article, but but it, was it wasn't speaking to the foreign affairs, you know, sort of Right, it wasn't speaking to that audience You know, all. and it really was, you know, there there is this single cause that is the root of all evil here and sort of, you know, an unwillingness to engage with the nuance and unwillingness to sort of engage with the inevitably difficult choices that any president is going to have to make. This read to me more like trying to get to the left of Bernie Sanders, kind of trying to position herself in the field of of Democratic, uh, you know, primary candidates. And I don't fault her for that. This is a political game. But this isn't um, an article that makes you think this is someone who is really smart on foreign policy. And, you know, this, she's served, you know, on the, on the Senate Armed Services Committee. She's, um, uh, you know, is well versed on these issues. But I, I don't think that the the competence and sophistication comes through. I think it comes is sort of it's far more political and, and sort of jargony. But that's I think that's all pretty par for the course for these types of forays. I think, you know, if you go back over the last four or five presidential elections, you'll see candidates putting out these kinds of essays and speeches, and they're all pretty thin on the ground. They certainly don't deal with nuance, and they do try to frame whatever foreign policy they have in terms of their domestic political program. I think the one thing that I am happy to see, both in her foreign affairs piece and in Bernie Sanders' uh, speech on foreign policy, which was in October, is that both of these super progressive Democratic candidates are talking about democracy and not only democracy at home, but democracy abroad and saying that, you know, she says, for example, democracy is running headlong into the ideologies of nationalism, authoritarianism and corruption and that we need to strengthen our democracy at home so that we can support democratic alliances abroad and be effective at beating back this authoritarian challenge. Sanders says something similar, sort of arguing that the rise of populism is because we're not supporting democracy enough both at home and abroad. And frankly, given how focused some of these guys are on class warfare and trade trade restrictions and stuff, I'm glad that they care about democracy abroad as well as at home. I but think they that's don't. reasonable, but they don't they don't engage. <laughs> I mean, what 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 has Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders ever done or said in support of the idea of democracy abroad other than Oh yeah, and democracy abroad. I mean, what th th they resist every U.S. effort. I'm not just talking about the Iraq War here, but like any time you propose to do something abroad because in in the interests of helping democracy, they worry about entanglements abroad as though it were sort of 1790 or something, and you know we were dealing with Washington's farewell address. Um, what I can't imagine a feature of either of their rhetoric that could be understood as less sincere. I mean, and there is a piece that I think she, both Sanders and Warren, sort of fail to engage with, and that's that we've had pretty good demonstration that things like an uncontained crisis in Syria places pressure on places like Europe in ways that lead to trends towards populism and authoritarianism and all that kind of stuff. So, yes, you know, um, embracing it as we need to strengthen our, our democracy at home so we can support it abroad while sort of not not um, engaging directly, even to say I don't I don't buy that argument, but just sort of sidestepping entirely the argument of this is why it is it is not you know altruism for us to be in Syria. It's not uh, you know corporate welfare to Boeing. It is about the United States global security interests. And you know I, I do think that it's interesting that we aren't seeing these candidates really try and differentiate from Trump and, and talk about rebuilding a Alliances and commitments to freedom and liberty and core democratic values. So You're such a neocon. <laughs> so I want to zoom out on this because, you know, you guys said something earlier that we kind of skated over and I think gets to the nub of it, which is that the whole essay is an effort to situate her foreign policy 
in the context of the themes that she believes in as domestic matter. And then I forget who said this. One of you said, well, she's not the first, like a lot of people try to situate their foreign policy in terms of domestic policy views. And my question is, why do politicians keep doing that? And who was the last politician who sounded smarter as opposed to what most politicians sound, which is like one note Charlie Dullard's by trying to have a sort of unified worldview. It's like a very crude kind of Marxy, like there's one thing that explains the whole world. And for me, it's the, it's, you know, it's, it's the Goldman Sachs. It's <laughs> Goldman Sachs, right? And they're you're driving asking. our foreign policy. And I mean, she, I gotta say, she doesn't sound smart. Well, you're asking two separate, well, you're asking two separate questions though, which is A, why do they try to write these speeches and, 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 and papers? And B, why do they always sound one note and stupid? No, and no, no, the, the A I, is obvious. Right? No, no, I understand why they write them. But I, why can't people, including politicians, accept that foreign policy and domestic policy often exists on entirely separate axes? But that's and you not can, what she says. And, and, what's that? Right, that's, that's not, not what she says and that's, that's not what she believes. But the, I think the point is, Ben, and the reason why is because she's running for president and she gets elected by American citizens, not by the rest of the world. Like once you become president, yes, then you can have the foreign policy that you think is best for the American national interest. But particularly at a moment when social and economic pressures are making Americans less inclined than they have been in several decades to invest in international affairs, you cannot win the presidency by arguing that we need to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy, no matter how good your argument so, might so be. So I'm not, I'm not saying that you need to do that. I'm saying that, that building a f- set of foreign policy propositions out of your domestic policy views is filling square pegs with round holes. She's I just mean, punching a ticket here. I don't look, think yeah, this is. Yeah. I think that's right. One thing that I do think will be interesting to look for, especially if if a senator becomes becomes the nominee or actually wins the presidency, is you know she has this sort of uh, brief line where she says, "Here at home, we've allowed an imperial presidency to stretch the constitution beyond recognition to justify the use of force with little oversight from Congress." Right, sort of really talking about her branch's prerogatives, you know, there's often a little bit of a transformation that occurs uh, when <laughs> yes. one is sworn into the presidency, in which all of a sudden, you know, their um, their interpretation of Article 2 is uh, is a little bit different. So it will Something be interesting. Something about the air in the Oval Office. Exactly. <laughs> it's intoxicating. Uh, uh, it will be interesting to see if, um, you know, I think these are people who have really developed and sophisticated views and, and you know, law professors who have sophisticated constitutional views, if they too like Obama and many others before them will be transformed um, mm. on on their views on executive power. Uh-huh. Well, we shall see. And we're going to make this a point on the podcast of when the uh, candidates announce, and there may be Republican candidates announcing too, uh, and when they articulate in some meaningful way, uh, in some substantial way, their foreign policy and national security views, we will come on here and tear them into ribbons. But yeah. are they likable? Yeah. Are, are they, they likable? Are they shrill? <laughs> Mitt I feel, like, I feel like we should drop the word platform. shrill and just ask likable. <laughs> and I'm going to just go out there and say, I'm not sure Elizabeth Warren is that likable a candidate. But I also think that's what some people like about her. I, I think we really need to ban the term likable. I'm really? also pro. It's a super, super gendered term. Oh, do you think it is? Yeah, oh I think my a God, shrill is a gendered term. There is so much term. data I was making a joke at the All right. Yeah, at the response. Okay. You're likable. You fell right enough. into my trap, yeah. Shane. You're likable enough, uh, Susan. Thanks, Shane. Aww. Thank you. God. Uh, let's move on to object lessons quickly. <laughs> so we can forget about that. <laughs> Before I talk about Vince Foster being killed again. Tammy, go. Okay, so speaking of people who have a way with words, um, my object is the farewell message of one James Mattis to the Department of Defense employees, both civilian and uniform, um, after he was unceremoniously dumped out of his job two months before he intended. Uh, on 31st December 2018, this very, very short, like maybe a hundred words message, just so much packed into it. So with your permission, I will read it quickly to all of you. 
On February 1st, 1865, President Lincoln sent to General Ulysses S. Grant a one-sentence telegram. It read, quote, let nothing which is transpiring change, hinder, or delay your military movements or plans, end quote. Our department's leadership, civilian and military, remains in the best possible hands. I am confident that each of you remains undistracted from our sworn mission to support and defend the Constitution while protecting our way of life. Our department is proven to be at its best when the times are most difficult, so keep the faith in our country and hold fast alongside our allies aligned against our foes. It has been my high honor to serve at your side. May God hold you safe in the air on land and at sea. And, you know, in those few sentences, really in just two or three sentences, he managed to sum up his core values, his principal difference with the president from whom he separated himself and to charge his team who feel a lot of loyalty toward him with keeping the faith. So I, I think it was a powerful message, not only to the DOD, but to all of us. The man can write. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's going to be a great memoir. Can you imagine the New York bidding war going Mad on dog. right now? Wow. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> Whoever proposes that title loses the contract. Exactly. <laughs> uh, ben, what's your object? No, you go first. Oh, you want me to go? Yeah. Um, so I'm actually, my object just, just happened a few days ago. If you may have noticed... Uh, a bunch of people standing on the platform in Times Square pushing the button to drop the ball. You may have noticed some of them from TV. Uh, but I thought this was very cool. A number of journalists actually were up there uh, for the ball drop in New York to ring in the new year. Uh, this was part of a, an effort put together by the committee to protect journalism, uh, which was there uh, honoring journalists and journalism the world over as we usher in 2019 and our most famous spectacle in which we do that. Um, never been to Times Square myself, but... Who performed this year? Oh, I don't even know. I think it was Christina Aguilera. Was it her? Yeah. So the question is whether the people watching on TV and the people watching in the square even noticed who, the who others was were. pushing the ball Yeah. Up. You think Christina Aguilera was like, Martha Raddatz? Yeah. I bet she was. <laughs> I would have been like, who's Christina? <laughs> Matt Murray. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very cool to see some friends and colleagues and others up there representing on 2019. So um, big shout out represents. to the Times Square folks and the uh, Committee to Protect Journalists. Happy New Year. So my object lesson, I always feel awkward when my object lesson is a person, but my object lesson is sitting to my left. As of yesterday, you didn't know this, but Susan Hennessy is now a Brookings senior. <gasps> wow. Do you have senioritis? I just like the like halo has now appeared. Wow. <laughs> just, can't you feel like the gravitas? Oh, yeah. Did you get a company van? <laughs> So like now, as, as, as soon as as soon as we live here, as soon as we as soon as, as, as soon as we leave here, we are going to take uh, Tammy and I are going to take Susan through the secret Brookings <gasps> Senior Fellow hazing rituals, <laughs> which were, involve getting a parking space, <laughs> which are like really like we keep them they're very deeply Closely held, held secrets. We'll teach you the and handshake. you have to become a Brookings Senior Fellow to to learn them. So that's what's going to happen as soon as. Rational security is done today. And, and I want you to know that now that you've achieved this, this status, you can automatically publish on the New York Times op-ed page whenever you want and start endless wars. That's right. Excellent. <laughs> My two New Year's resolutions have already been realized. <laughs> you finally be the neocon you always wanted to be. <laughs> well, congratulations and welcome to the club. Thank you. And welcome to the end of the podcast, Aww. beginning of a new year, end of a podcast. We're really glad to be back with you guys. Rational Security is, of course, a production of a Lawfare. You can find our show page and all of our archives on the Lawfare website. Yoo-hoo. It looks great up there. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to be sooner or later. They're going to be like, what is this weekly ritual about? Well, anyone who's like a new listener that's like, missed why, this. Why does he spend all this time talking about that? <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps people find the podcast and we appreciate it. Our show is edited by Jen Patia Howell. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. Music this week by Patrick Shanahan and his new cheer 
cheerleading dance troupe, give me an A. <laughs> Excellent. There's no A in Boeing. I'd just like to point that out. There's no Patrick Shanahan in Boeing anymore either. <laughs> That's really good. That was good, Shanahan. You like that one? I like the way you worked off of the the – the joke at the top of the podcast. Yeah, it doesn't always, podcast, I don't always good. have much Having married into an Irish family, I feel very attacked right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sophia Yan, by the way, has two A's. So she could perhaps do backup for the band's trip. And by the way, I said this on the Lawfare podcast in, the, in our recent AMA episode. But if for those of you who have not read uh, Sophia Yan's uh, piece about her travels around northern China in, in Muslim regions, it is really worth people's time. And her video, which she posted of uh, her confrontations with the uh, Chinese state security services, are pretty remarkable. Right on. So check that out. On behalf what a badass of, she is. She totally Such a is. Badass. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tomarkoff and Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Happy New Year. 